Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. How's everybody doing out there? Great to have you with us on Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Like to thank the Believe Network for believing in this show. We'd like to thank our producer engineer today, Austin Elmore, for all of his outstanding work. And uh, it's great to be back with you. Um, our guest this week, you know, there, there's always people you meet in your life that uh, they, they, they just stand out. And I'm not talking about your wife or your kids or, you know, maybe some of your really, really, really close friends. I, I'm just talking about a person you, you meet. It might only be one time. And, I, and that's hard to make an impression, this kind of impression I'm about to talk about, meeting somebody one time. Uh, but but I've had the opportunity, and I, and I call it a blessing, to be around our guest, Anthony Munoz, many, many times. And Anthony's going to join us in, in a two-part series uh, starting today. Th- this guy, um, I don't know if it's his faith. I don't know if it's his background, which you're going to hear a lot about, which might surprise you, growing up in Ontario, California. Uh, I don't know whether it's the injuries he had to go through. He'll talk about those things. Uh, A combination of all the above. Having a dad who was in and out of prison that he never even knew. Mom working two jobs. Five kids in the house. Um, You know, Anthony Munoz is a special, special man. And and, and I think you're going to enjoy this. We're back with Anthony Munoz, and you're dialed in with Tom Brenneman. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Michael Anthony Munoz was born in Ontario, California in August of 1958. He played college football at the University of Southern California from 76 to 79. Believe it or not, he also played baseball there, pitching for USC's national championship team in 1978. The Trojans won a bowl game in all four of Munoz's seasons, including three Rose Bowl wins. In the opening game of his senior year, Anthony Munoz suffered torn ligaments in his knee, had to miss the entire regular season. He decided to come back to play in the Rose Bowl, a win against undefeated Ohio State, when he could have taken a medical redshirt. USC head coach John Robinson said that was a perfect game from Munoz. That's one of the greatest things I have ever seen happen. 
Munoz was a third overall pick in the 1980 NFL draft by the Cincinnati Bengals. His selection was viewed as a little bit of a risk, since knee problems limited him to just 16 games over his last two years at USC. However, as you know, Munoz became a starter in his rookie season. He would go on to 11 Pro Bowls and is largely considered the greatest offensive lineman in NFL history. He played in two Super Bowls, both narrow losses to the San Francisco 49ers. He was named to the NFL's 75th anniversary team, the 100th anniversary all-time team. He's in the newly created Bengals Ring of Honor. But it's his work off the field that certainly deserves as much attention as his work on the field. He's been the NFL's Walter Payton Award winner. The Anthony Munoz Foundation was created in 2002, where he impacts area youth in Cincinnati and greater Cincinnati mentally, physically, and spiritually. He met his wife, Dee Dee, at USC. They were married his sophomore year in 78. They are the father of two, and I can't believe it, He's a grandfather now and going to all sorts of events and that kind of thing. All right, Anthony Munoz, of all the things that I just said and talked about, what is there anything I forgot that maybe you're most proud of? No, you covered it, uh, Tom, pretty well. Uh, just like I asked you to, and I wrote it out for you. No. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice, my friend. It's great to hear well, your hey, voice. Well, it's always good to see you. I think last time I saw you in person, you were uh, get, finishing up a workout at the Country Club, Kenwood. I was getting ready to go out and spray the ball around on your course there. But uh, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, now, I appreciate those kind words and the introduction, and it just uh, – you know, it really brought back a lot of great memories, even with the adversity through college and the injuries. And But, uh, you know, the main thing, and you mentioned it, uh, you mentioned Didi. Uh, you know, we got married my sophomore year there in college, and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I was 19 years old, and I said, you know what, I'm ready to settle down. And, uh, you know, and, and we did, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, here in a couple months, we'll actually next month, we'll be celebrating 44 years of marriage. Wow. And I'm thankful for that. Uh but it's just, it's neat to, to really reminisce and think about the things that I've been through because that's one of the messages I share with a lot of young people. Don't forget where you come from and don't forget the adversity you go through because it really helps you become the person that you, you know, hopefully you want to be. And it, you know, I, I tell people, you use them as building blocks, yep. you use them as incentives, as motivators, and, uh, you know, to a passion you have, a, a dream you have. And, and I've done that with everything you're talking about. I can look back and see how that has been key to, you know, where I am now. I want to ask you about growing up in Ontario, California. Uh, what was like, uh, what, what was family life like or, or your, your life like in general growing up in the Munoz home? Well, Tom, first of all, we didn't have a whole lot. There was five kids. I have two older brothers. Well, I had two older brothers, two younger sisters. My mom raised five by herself. There was So there was the six of us. She would work two and three jobs, you know, to provide for us. We never had a car. Uh, it was always, you know, uh, she was one of ten, so we had a lot of, uh, you know, help from relatives, yeah. uncles. Um, so that was key. But, you know, for me as a kid, even though I didn't have a whole lot, I had a lot of support, and I knew I was loved. And as long as I had uh, my buddies and my baseball glove in the summer, that's all that mattered. Because, you know, in Southern California, you can play baseball year round. You can play two, three games a day in the summer. 
And that was my first love. I started playing baseball at like six, seven years old. Uh, and again, even though, I mean, we had to wash and wear our clothes because we were the same clothes over and over. Uh, we had to make sure that our sanitaries we held up, but, you know, at least we, we couldn't get, you know, a new pair every, you know, four games. We had to make sure that our, our sanitaries in Little League, you know, held up. But uh, and that's what I remember. It was just a lot of support. Uh, you know, and my mom allowed me to, you know, and she, I mean, we knew who the boss was. I yep. mean, there was, we learned work ethic and we learned responsibility. We learned work ethic because all we had to do is watch her work in two, three jobs to provide for us. We learned responsibility because during the school year, if I wanted to play baseball or any other sport, we had to have our homework done. So responsibility in the summer, if I wanted to go out, like I was just talking about, play with my buddies all day long. Uh, we had to do our chores around the house. And, Tom, I'm talking not just – we had to wash clothes, dry clothes, yeah. you know, hang them up on the clothesline, iron them, wash dishes. And, of course, we had to cook for each other. We learned how to cook at a young age. So we're pretty much survival mode. So I had to get all those things done before I was able to go out. So work ethic and responsibility. But other than that, man, it was just go out and, uh, and play for as many parks. You know, it was funny. We, we reminisced because I have a 57-year relationship <laughs> with a gentleman who was a head parks and recreation when I started playing. And then he was my high school baseball coach for three years. I played uh, varsity for him for three years and we still talk about it. Uh, you know, he says, you know, he was the head of parks and recreation and there was like three or four parks that believed that me and my buddies belonged on their team because we would play for so <laughs> many parks. And, uh, but that's, that was growing up. I mean, it was just, uh, School, baseball, and my buddies I hung out with. You know, it's funny you're sitting here talking so much about baseball, Anthony, because as I mentioned in the introduction, you ended up playing baseball as well at, at USC. But when you're in high school, were you always this massive guy? I mean, six six, and, you know, growing and huge and football player, baseball player. Did, did, did you feel like you wanted to play baseball looking to your future more so than football? I really did, Tom, because when I got to high school – my focus was on playing for Jim Seaman, who was a guy I mentioned. I mentioned, didn't mention him by name, but he's a guy I met when I was seven years old. He was the varsity coach at my high school. Uh, he pitched on the 61 USC national championship team. So I knew his background. So I wanted to get to high school and right away, hopefully make the varsity squad. And I did. I played three years, sophomore. I was all state three years. And football was one of those things that I played flag football from eighth grade or eight years old to eighth grade. And because I was a pitcher third baseman and the strength was my arm, not my speed <laughs> running. I'm talking about, I was a, I was a quarterback and I, I would throw to the fast guy. So I get to high school and I decide to play tackle football for the first time. And of course, that's the first sport as a freshman. I was going to be a quarterback. I, mean, I ran over with the quarterbacks and the coach looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to be a quarterback. He goes, no, 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 I don't think so. He goes, you go back in. You got to see Henry. Henry was our equipment manager. He said, he's going to switch up your face mask. You need a, an offensive line face mask. I go, what? What are you talking about? So, so I, you know, he's the coach. So I went in, got the face mask, first day at tackle football. I'm learning how to get in a three-point stance. I'm thinking, this is crazy. I should, I should be throwing to those wide receivers I've been throwing, you know, to for years. And second day, being one of the biggest kids on campus, I'm thinking, this is a lot of fun, being able to throw these kids around with, the, you know, legally on this football field. Right. So, so I didn't play varsity football until my junior year. I played uh, freshman football. I'll never forget my biology teacher, Tom Graham, was a, the sophomore. He was actually, I was a sophomore in his class. I was 6'4", 240. 
and I was playing on the sophomore football team, and he was the varsity linebackers coach. And he goes, Anthony, he goes, when are you going to come out, try out for the varsity? I said, Coach, I said, this is only my second year playing football. He says, Yeah, but I think you're like maybe the second or third biggest kid on campus. Right. And I said, You know, so I'm thinking, I'm still thinking baseball. And yeah, Tom, I was, you know, as a starting third baseman as a sophomore in high school, I was 6'5, 265. My senior year, I was six. 275 playing third base you know so it was one of those things that was my love third base pitch uh and I was so I like I said all state three years in baseball all state two years in football but at 6'6 300 pounds football was my meal ticket that's where I was yeah. going to get my school paid for and that's where I was being recruited you know across the country and but the main thing I wanted to do is and that was part of the recruiting spill was Okay, you come here, go to school, play football, we'll let you play baseball. And, of course, growing up as a, as a kid, I was a big USC fan. USC had a track record of letting guys do that. I mean, it was a known deal. It wasn't just a recruiting pitch. And, of course, I was, I was sold on USC from, like, you know, 9th, 10th grade. And once they offered, man, I was there. And they did. They let me play baseball. The rule was, as a freshman, you came in, you had to go through spring football, and then your sophomore year, you could play baseball. But, of course, you talked about the injuries. I had three knee operations in four years. My healthy season was my sophomore year. That's the year I played baseball, and the only year, which was amazing because I had a chance to play varsity. Um, we went to Omaha, won the World Series, and I got to kind of be there for the ride. You know, I pitched like 10 innings that year. We had a stud staff, um, and, you know, our team was totally loaded. We just about everybody got drafted. So I got to experience that uh, that one year of baseball. Uh, so, yeah, baseball was like even, – even that year when I was playing baseball as a sophomore in college, I'm thinking, well, you know, football didn't work out, maybe baseball. But you know, it, that was kind of a – you know – being a little over optimistic about things when you get hurt anthony your senior year and correct me if i'm wrong it's a season opener uh you you mentioned that your only full year had been your sophomore year you you get hurt during your junior year but now you're coming back for your senior year everybody knows you're this big huge prospect um and you get hurt in the season opener you don't play the rest of the season and you have a decision to make then to come back and play in the Rose Bowl or take a medical red shirt. What what were you thinking at that time? Tom, it was, for me, it was a, I don't think it took long for me to make a decision that I was going to bust my butt and come back because that previous year, my junior, I played seven games. We had a Heisman Trophy winner. We won the national championship. And so I'm going back into my senior year, and it's my last hurrah coming off that second knee operation. So, But the one thing about it, the things I went to USC for, I mean, I know academically, you know, you, you go there and it's going to be a great table setter for you if you get it done. But I go to the playing Rose Bowls and playing national championships. Going into my senior year, we had played in two Rose Bowls. I hadn't played in one. Uh, the guys that I'd come into school with had played in the Rose Bowl. So after I got hurt, I'll never forget, I'm sitting in my bed the day after surgery, and I'm at Cedar sinai Hospital there in Beverly Hills, and Brian Gumble is doing a live interview with me. He's in the studio. I'm hooked up in my bed in the hospital. And he basically says, Anthony, when is enough enough? When are you going to – and I said, Brian, I said – I don't know when enough is enough, but I do know that when I get out of here, 
I know my guys are going to win. We're going to go to our third Rose Bowl. And I still have the passion and the desire to rehabilitate and give it one more shot. And I knew right then that I was going to come back and I was going to be ready for that Rose Bowl. And a medical redshirt would not be in my thinking. And, and sure enough, you know, the guys thought, everybody thought I was nuts. I mean, Didi, my wife, watched that interview. She's, after the fact, she's saying, that poor guy, man, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, my buddies were, would encourage me in every game during the season. I'd say, come on, guys, keep going. I'm going to be with you in the Rose Bowl. They'd kind of say, okay, yeah, right, yeah, yeah you know. But I think I might have been the only one that believed that I was going to rehab. And, Tom, I don't know. You're not as old as me, but you remember the McFadden and that the song "Ain't No Stopping Us Now." Uh, of course, I do. Um, that was I had a little cassette recorder. I didn't have the you know the the Bluetooth and the, right, the download. Right, of, of course, music. I did too. I know, I know. I had, I had I had a little cassette that I would hook up to my waist on a belt, and every workout I wore that song out. Ain't no stopping us now. And my routine would go. I I had the backpack before backpacks were. You know, in, I would go to class, I would go to rehab, I'd lift, I'd go back or back to my room, our apartment with my, you know, with Diddy, and I'd do homework, and that was my routine. And I was just, we would win the games, and I'd go to the game on Saturday, and I'd be the official spatter, you know, I'd spat the guys up, and I'd be there rooting them on. And we won the Pac-10 again, and um, now it was time to convince John Robinson that I could play in that game. And, uh, and there was no reason why, because by that time, uh, my cardio was a little different because I was, uh, my cardio was on a bicycle. I mean, I felt like Lance Armstrong. I mean, I was <laughs> on a bicycle. I mean, my legs were strong. And after about a half hour convincing John Robinson that I was ready, that I wasn't going to come back for a medical red shirt, no interest in going to grad school. I was finishing undergrad. I'm ready to move on. He said, if you get the okay from the doctor, I'll let you start practicing. So, man, I went to the doc. And by that time, because I had two on my right, and this third one was on my left leg, Tom. So I went to the doc, and he said, there's no reason why you can't start practicing and get ready for the Rose Bowl. My left leg was a little stronger than my right leg. And, you know, I was busting both of them by then. Uh, So I went back to John Robinson, and he goes, okay. He goes, I see you're serious. I'm going to let you start practicing. And it's interesting because we sat there and he went through the practice schedule. I forget, I don't know, 17 days of practice for the Rose Bowl, something like that. And he goes, I'll let you go through this drill, but not this drill, this drill, but not that. And I said, wait, wait, coach. I said, every drill you want me to go through is a non-contact drill. Every drill you want to keep me out of is a contact drill. I said, I want to go put the pads on. And I want to earn that job back. And he goes, all right, all right, you win. You put the pads on. And I went through every practice. Uh, the only thing that got me at first was we ran about 10 110s after practice. And because I was bicycling, not running at that time, it took me a couple of days to get my legs under me. But my cardio was great. And I made every practice and played the entire game. And I knew that that was it. It was either one last game and then move on and do something else or that Rose Bowl and maybe somebody, just maybe somebody would let me go to their camp as a free agent because that was the word. Before the season, top pick, after that third knee operation, low round pick, maybe even a first or a, a free agent, maybe not even that. So, Tom, that was my thought process. And I was, Didi would look at me, I would come home and we had this little one bedroom apartment. Even after working out and homework, 
I would grab a jump rope. I'd turn the burners on, and we, it was so small, it would be like a sauna, and I would jump rope at night just as some extra conditioning. And she would look at me like, I was, what have I gotten into here? <laughs> well, well, Anthony, <laughs> where, where did it change? Where did it change? You know, did, Was there a combine back then? We had about a half dozen combines. So we went, I remember, went to L.A., Philadelphia, New York, Dallas. Um, yeah, and it was one of those things where, you know, I played in that game, and it was crazy because I watched it, and it was probably the best game I've played in four years. No after missing the entire season. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, I mean, I was, it, I was blown away by it. I felt so great. I felt strong. I felt fresh, and the guys were kidding me. I was like, man, that's a good way to do it. Miss the season, you're fresh, come in, play in the Rose Bowl, and then you get drafted number three. Right. But, no, it was one of those things where – you know, that was, I knew I had to play the game of my life. And then after that, I continued just to, you know, a lot of these guys go to Arizona and, you know, Florida nowadays to work out. I said, the guy that got me in that Rose Bowl was our strength coach there at SC. So I'm going to stay there and go to class and work out with our strength coach. And he's going to get me ready for the combines. And I knew going to the combines that I just had to be over the top strength wise, you know, everything we did. And sure enough, I was always the last guy out of the physical examinations. There was guys, we'd go to Dallas and guys, hey, we're going to go out. And I said, well, I'll be with you in another hour or two because i got to see all these docs over again. Uh, But I would be the last one. And that was fine with me. I just wanted to make sure that they saw that my legs were fine. And, uh, you know, half the teams didn't see that because half the teams failed me. But that was fine. Uh, So that was my whole mindset. I continued just to – and then, of course, you know, I knew the draft order, even though, you know, people were saying I wasn't going to be drafted, but I was still paying attention to the draft order. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, uh, Forrest Gregg was just hired as the Cincinnati Bengals head coach, and he calls. He says, I'd like to come out and work you out. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. First of all, I knew who Forrest Gregg was. I mean, you know, it's like here's Vince Lombardi called him the finest player he ever right, coached, right. Hall of Fame tackle. He's the new head coach, and he's coming out to work me out. So I'm thinking – Here's my chance. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at it. I go, there's a third pick. So he worked me out for about two hours on our practice field. And I felt great about it, but still didn't know what was going to happen. And then it was just the waiting process. I mean, hearing things, you know, you try not to read things because it wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be reading very good things about, you know, where I was going to be drafted or if I was going to be drafted. And all these experts and pundits were saying, you know, hey, find something else to do in your life. That that was a nice finish to your college career with that Rose Bowl game. But it's time to move on. And I'm, I again, incentives, motivators to work even harder and get ready. And, and of course, you know, the rest is history. April 29th, 1980, you know, my, my phone rings right after the draft started. And I'm thinking, this is a little too early. Maybe it's a relative that's calling to see, <laughs> hey, have you been drafted yet? I got to get him off the phone in case it is somebody. Right. And uh, it was, it was the Bengal secretary. And I'm thinking, holy smoke. She goes, can you hold on for coach Jim McNally? Well, I'd met Jim because I flew into Cincinnati in January to have, you know, again, to be checked out by Dr. Ballou and to meet with Mike and Pete and Pete Brown and Jim McNally took me to lunch because they had just hired Jim McNally as a line coach. Well, he's the one that grabbed the phone and said, Anthony, you're our guy. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Wow. Hung up the phone and, I mean, if you want to see a big guy, just weep, six foot six, two ninety, three hundred pounds. I sat there and wept. And after I composed myself, I said, "Dude, that was the Bengal." I said, "We're going to Cincinnati." And we looked at each other. And she goes, 
we're Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't care. We'll find out. But we're, we're the number three pick in the draft. And, and that's kind of my mindset the whole time. And, and, you know, people, like I said, people really thought I'd lost my rocker, man. They thought, uh, you know, that third knee operation, maybe they went in and fixed the knee and, you know, hit them in the head, dropped them in the operating room or something right. while they were working on them. But, what, uh, yeah, I was just determined. Have you met, had you met uh, Anthony, um, I, I know you said you talked to Forrest Gregg. He comes out works you out but of course paul brown is the owner of the bank first of all do you have any idea who paul brown is and do you remember the first time you met him you know what i i wasn't a big football history guy uh because i was i mean now tell me you know who owned this baseball team or who pitched or sure you know, tell me, i can tell you about you know bob gibson 60 you know his 31 wins and 26 complete games and you know that stuff but I'm thinking, Paul Brown, man, that's got to be, and, you know, you start, you have to do some research. And, you know, then all of a sudden I find out, you know, Cleveland Browns, you know, he started the organization. So I, I wasn't really up on that history. But after the fact, after you, you know, because I wanted to learn about it, and then you realize, but then you meet the guy and it's like, holy smokes. I mean, this guy is football. I mean, he's yeah. NFL, yep. AFL, American. I mean, this guy is football. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I'm just, like, in awe of who I'm going to play for. And, of course, I get here, and he's around every single day, every meeting. So it's like you get to know the guy. I mean, and it's not just like a lot of owners that have made their money somewhere else and they kind of their game day and mm-hmm. you see him now and then. You see and interact with him, and he shares stories with you. So, it was, I mean, it was pretty exciting once I did meet him for the first time early on, uh, and you know, had a chance to, you know, to come here to Cincinnati and acquaint myself with the city. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a, I mean, it was amazing. It was uh, to say the least. Because you know, a lot of people, Anthony, they, they, there have been a lot of players for the Bengals, n- none like you. I mean, you're the greatest player in the history of the franchise. But there are a lot of players that necessarily didn't have a great relationship with Paul Brown. I mean, some will tell you he wasn't the easiest guy in the world to get along with, but but you always got along well with him? I did. I did. You know, and that's – so my, my first negotiation was a really turbulent one. I mean, it was – I hired a guy that was known to hold guys out, was no – I mean – and him and Mike, I mean, he started calling Mike names and said that Mike, you know, had reneged on stuff and that there's no way I'm, and I'm just kind of sitting back working out, you know, and I'll never forget, I'm working out at USC and Kim Wood, longtime strength yep, coach, yep. Is, is coming out to LA because Reggie Williams is rehabilitating the knee out in LA. So he says, Anthony, I'd love to come back. And I hadn't signed yet. This was during the negotiations that were, like I said, I mean, they were pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And Kim says, I'd like to come by and put you through a workout. I'm like, hey, let's do it. Because I know eventually I'm going to sign, and uh, and he's going to be my strength coach. So he had a totally different workout than a lot of He had a high intensity. And uh, so <laughs> we're in our weight room there at USC, and my guys are watching me because I'm, I'm working out with my guys. And I, after an hour, Tom, I literally – I'm crawling out of the weight room after an hour. And my body feels like I'm going to just explode. And, and my agent caught wind of it. He's like, what are you doing? You're not signed yet? And I said, Mike, settle down. I said, I will sign. I know we'll get it done. 
And, you know, he's going to be my strength coach. But he got all excited because, you know, he put me through this workout and I could barely walk out of the weight room. (laughs) But I'm thinking, man, this is this is pretty impressive. I thought I knew what it meant to work and to pump, you know, to get it going in the weight room. But this is going to be another level. And sure enough, you know, I I signed a day before camp and uh, I got here. And uh, but, you know. Mike never, you know, it was crazy because it was the relationship with Paul, even though Mike was a negotiator, Mike was cordial. I'd see him, but it wasn't really until Paul passed away and I I negotiated my last contract that I really spent a lot of time talking to Mike and he was always cordial, but Paul was so engaged. Yeah. I knew that it was tough and I knew that other places were different, but you know what, Tom, I was grateful that they gave me an opportunity when I'm sure most of the fan base was scratching their head thinking, what is this team doing? You know, they've just gone through two, four, and 12 years. Now they're drafting a guy that hasn't played much college right, football. Right, right, right. Uh, but, you know, I was just thankful. Didi and I were grateful coming here because they gave me an opportunity to get to an NFL camp, and that's all I wanted. But they made me the third pick. So, yeah, I, I knew all the history, and even though we had tough times negotiating, my first one, my second one, you know, my guy wanted me to be traded because – you know, it was tough. It was tough. And, uh, you know, then I did my last contract and it was easy. Uh, we got it done in like two or three negotiating sessions, but, uh, yeah, but Paul Brown was great. I tell you, you know, he was, he was always good to me. I had a great relationship with them. I understood how tough he was, but just like Forrest Gregg, my first head coach, this was my job. And as long as I busted my tail in the off season to get ready. And then I got ready at camp and I produced, that's that was I, what I had to do, and that was my way of thanking them for drafting me. And that you know, that's my profession. It's how I was going to put food on the table. And I wanted to to spend oh, the goals I started to set after they drafted me was double digit years. I wanted to play over ten years because nobody you know gave me a chance to get through one season after right. they drafted me. So another motivator. So that was one of you know several of my individual goals was every time I put the uniform on, I wanted to start for this team. I wanted to be a pro board, and I wanted to play ten plus years because they gave me a chance and I wanted them to be, you know, thrilled and, you know, wanted the people to know that they made the right decision. So I was very grateful. And I mean, and there was no free agency back then. So I knew I, if I was going to be playing, it was either at a team that I made every year or they were going to get rid of me because I wasn't productive and I had to try to you know make it somewhere else. So, yeah, and fell in love with the community along with it. So very thankful for Paul Brown. Well, we thank Anthony Munoz. Thank you, sir, for your time this week. And we will have Anthony Munoz part two and talk more about his NFL career and what he's done since retiring from the NFL. You're dialed in with Tom Brenneman. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.